Hey, good morning. My name is John Ziegler, and I am the pastor here at Church of the Resur- uh, oh, Church of the Incarnation. <laughs> I was at some point uh, pastor of the Church of the Resurrection. Um, spent some time with those folks this week, but today we're in Incarnation. And in case you don't know, the story of the Incarnation sounds a little different in the different Gospels. And in John's Gospel, it sounds like this. In the beginning was the word. So the word is like the eternal logos, the logic of everything. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. So he was the source of life, and he was the source by which we can recognize what is true. And then when we hop down to verse 14, we get these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or as Eugene Peterson translates it, moved into the neighborhood And John says, we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. And it's passages like this that fund our mission statement here at Church of the Incarnation. Our mission is this, to be the body of Christ, a demonstration of God's beauty, goodness, and truth for the sake of our city. Our mission is to be the body of Christ, demonstration of God's beauty, goodness, and truth for the sake of our city. So just as the word came into the world so that men and women could see the glory of the Father's only Son, we too are a people, reborn as sons and daughters of the Father, filled with the Spirit of the Christ, that we might also manifest to the world what God is like. It's like when Jesus says in John, just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And just as the Son came into the world to manifest to us, to show us what God is like, so now the Son is sending us into Shambly, into Brookhaven and Doraville and wherever it is you may find yourself in North Atlanta, to show the world what God is like. I wanted to begin with John 1, because John 1 frames really every chapter in the book of John, including John 14, our gospel reading this morning. And I want to walk through the first seven verses together. First thing Jesus says here is, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Really, Jesus? <laughs> Don't let my heart be troubled? <laughs> like, do I even have a choice, right? <laughs> like, is it not just a reaction? I know sometimes I feel like I'm reacting, right? Like, that just happened, and I am troubled by it. I didn't even notice the let part in there. Uh, Wendell Berry, uh, probably an author who's known to many of you, reading him this week, or, and he said something like this, There's always a reason to be unhappy. 
And so all human happiness is unreasonable. And I find that to be really true in my life. There's always a reason to be troubled. What is so troubling for the disciples in this situation? Well, Jesus had just told them, I'm going to go away. Like, you've been following me for three years, but I'm about to go away. And the place where I'm going, you can't go with me. And he explains to them that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to die, that one of them sitting here is going to betray him, and the greatest leader sitting amongst them is going to deny them. He's just said all kinds of things that could, and we might even say should, trouble them. And some of us are thinking, yeah, yeah, but if only they knew. If only they knew about the resurrection was right around the corner, right? Then it would be okay. Well, then the problem is after the resurrection comes the ascension, right? And then he leaves. He's like, oh, no. Well, well after the ascension is going to come Pentecost. And then the spirit is going to come and everything's going to be great, right? Only it won't. Because just the next chapter after Pentecost, we, we're reading about Stephen getting stoned. And all kinds of people are going to be ready to kill them and will kill them. And then they're going to go out and plant churches in the Mediterranean world. And those churches are going to be completely dysfunctional, right? We read in the book of, Cor of Corinthians, and it's like the Jerry Springer show all over again, right? Peace be upon him, right? I know he just, uh, he just passed, <laughs> bringing our, our 90s childhood back to us. Some of us should not have been watching that. Um, Back in the day when we had cable, right? Uh, actually, I don't think we even needed cable before we even had cable. Anyway, what are we talking about? The church in Corinth. It was completely dysfunctional. And then there's some really wealthy people that are showing up, and they're eating all of the Eucharist before the poor people even get off of work and can even make it to the meeting. There's so much to be troubled. Like, they're giving their lives for that. Imagine you're Paul. You're out here getting beaten. You're getting shipwrecked, all this stuff for that. That's church planning, folks. That's what, the, that's, that's what this is about. And we can, it's just going to go on and on and on, right? In fact, from the moment that Jesus is telling them this to the moment these disciples are killed for their faith, there will never be something not to be troubled about. Like, literally, there's always going to be something. And if somehow they could have survived all that and they just stayed awake for church history, they're going to notice in every chapter of the church we're up against something that is here to deeply trouble us. If, if they will just let it, there will be something to trouble them. I too have reasons to be troubled, and I'm sure you do too. <laughs> Three weeks ago, Father Matthew was here, preached such a great sermon. And in that sermon, he gave us a great litany of things that we have to be afraid of, right? And it was a list that I deeply resonated with. And I can let my heart be troubled by what is happening with my family. Because there's always something. And I can let my tr heart be troubled by what is happening here with my church family, right? Because I know you guys are carrying a lot. There is a lot here. 
I could let my heart be troubled by cell phones going off in the, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Gail, I love you so much, and it doesn't trouble me at all. So I forget, sometimes it's ringing in church, and it's actually me. I'm like, I'm not touching it, but it's that text message was me. Judge not, lest you be judged, the word says. I can let my heart be troubling by what is going on, not only here in, this, in our church, but in the wider church. I just spent the week with precious friends. We're at the, the C4SO, uh, Church for the Sake of Others, the name of our diocese. We're at our clergy conference. And so my pastor friends from all over the country are there. And it's just such a great time to talk and to catch up and to share life together, to bear one another's burdens. And there's so much. There's so much there that could trouble us. The church is splintering all around. The global church is splintering, right, over really hard questions to ask around things like human sexuality and race and, and what's the best way to talk about it. There's so many things out there that could trouble us, and I could let my heart be troubled by our gun violence epidemic. It was so sad to hear about what was happening here in Midtown, as I was arriving in Kansas City this week. And it was only there, as we were speaking with some friends from Nashville, that we learned that a pastor in our same diocese, not that far away, um, her son was in the classroom as that shooting in Nashville was happening. But in all this, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, I know Jesus isn't saying never be sad or have empathy or never mourn the loss of a friend or to simply stuff your feelings. I think this is related to what the Apostle Paul says when he says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. As I've already <laughs> mentioned, Paul is someone who has been beaten and rejected by his own people and shipwrecked and imprisoned, and yet he is not going to let his heart be troubled. Paul chooses to rejoice in the Lord. And I find it fascinating that in our daily prayer in the morning office, in our Book of Common Prayer, every morning we pray the Venite, we pray Psalm 95. And it's a psalm that we're supposed to do every year, every, every morning, and it begins with, an imperative, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout for joy to the rock of our salvation. No matter what morning it is, right? Not every morning is equal or created the same. But every morning, our prayer book assumes that we are going to be able to rejoice in our Lord regardless of the circumstance. Do not let your hearts be troubled Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, what I want you to know is that Jesus isn't speaking to people that are starting to doubt the existence of God, right? They actually don't live in a world in which that, something like that's even possible. So when he says believe in God, it's not like, hey, I want you to kind of trust in like the intellectual, you know, some really good arguments, right, for the existence of God and just believe in that and that's going to make things good. No, this belief is more like trust, Trust in God, that God is indeed good and beautiful and true and loving and merciful and all-powerful, and that in the end, 
God is going to have God's way. Believe also in me. And by this, he doesn't mean so much that Jesus is eternally begotten son of the father, that he's God from light or light from true light, uh, fully God and fully human, uh, you know, although all these things are true and important. What he means here is trust in me. Have confidence in Jesus. Have confidence that Jesus has you. Mother Jana preached last week about the good shepherd and how he loves and cares for you. And the word from Jesus is to trust that, that he is the good shepherd and that he is going to love and care for you. It's true. It's about to get scary because Jesus is crucified. And to be honest, it's always going to be scary even after that. And so Jesus tells his friends, you have to trust me. As your pastor who loves you deeply, I'm here this morning to tell you the thing that I need you to tell me as well. You just have to trust him. You gotta trust him. You gotta trust him. Yes, life is scary now. And it always will be. But we can trust Jesus. Don't let the next fill in the blank shake you, right? Don't let the next shooting shake you. Don't let the next family crisis shake you, right? Don't let the next economic crisis shake you. Trust in God. Trust that Jesus has you. First thing we're talking about this morning is don't let your hearts be troubled because you can trust him. The second thing I want to look at is how we cannot let our hearts be troubled because he is preparing a way for us to be with him. Verse 2 says this, in my father's house there are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. I've got some friends who use this slogan. It doesn't have to be this way. They have a t-shirt. It's a t-shirt. It doesn't have to be this way. It means we don't have to accept this unjust world as we have inherited. It's here to indicate that we are not powerless to change our future. And the imagination from Jesus here is somewhat similar. I could hear him saying, it won't always be this way. It won't always be this way because I am preparing a world that is void of the kind of self-preserving fear that fuels the violence and injustice of the Roman cross. Al Bell, who composed that song we heard this morning, I'll take you there. He composed it after attending the funeral of his brother who was murdered. And I'm not sure what was read at that funeral, 
But I know at least in our liturgy, John 14, 1 through 6 is a traditional reading. And so I can actually imagine these words in the mouth of Jesus himself. I know a place, y'all. I'll take you there. Ain't nobody crying. I'll take you there. When I point, you got to say it with me. <laughs> Ain't nobody worried. I'll take you there. No smiling faces. I'll take you there. Uh, lying to the races. I'll take you there. This is basically what Jesus is telling his disciples. You guys are really bad at that, by the way. We, we need to work on it. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, all right? I, I appreciate a little feedback, all right? Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm praying for y'all. Y'all pray for me. All right. This is basically Jesus telling his disciples that song. And I can imagine as he says it, that thick Jamaican bass line grooving in the background. Don't let your hearts be troubled, all right? I know a place, y'all. Ain't nobody crying. Ain't nobody worried. Folks aren't there being lied to and taken advantage of. See, friends, the Father's house is a safe place. It's a place without worry or injustice. It's a place of wholeness and truth, of love and warmth, where there's always enough food and there's always a seat for you at the table. It would be so sad if there were not enough room for us, wouldn't it? But Jesus is telling us right here, don't worry, because there's room for you. There is room for you. There is room. You got to trust him. If it weren't the case, he would have told you. But instead, listen to his promise. Listen to the promise here. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may also be. Listen to the promises. One, I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. Two, I'm going to come again. I'll be back. Three, I'm going to take you to myself. I'm going to take you to myself. I know a place. I'll take you there. I'm going to take you to myself. The promise is that we get to be with Jesus. And he's going to take us there. Don't let your hearts be troubled. First, believe in God. Put your trust in him. Trust that Jesus knows what he's doing and he's going to do what he said he would do. Second, don't let your hearts be troubled. Instead, trust that Jesus is preparing a place and that he's going to take you there. And the last one is this. Don't let your hearts be troubled because you already know the way to the place. Picking back up in verse 4, Jesus says, And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, What are you talking about? Lord, we don't know the way where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way 
the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so if you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you know him, and you have seen him. For some of our theologically liberal friends, this verse feels like a big problem. Some of my friends would rather read it, I am a way and a truth and a life. This kind of thinking, by the way, isn't new. It is rooted in 18th century Enlightenment thought, the kind of thinking that came out of the Northern Europe in the 1700s. And the idea is basically this. We can't really know what God is like. God is beyond our knowing. And there's some really great religions, and the best of the religions are simply trying to do their best to describe what is unknowable. And so, you know, we're trying to describe things that are ultimate with our finite language that we have been given. And there's actually lots of ideas in there that are kind of true. Like, yeah, there is this part about God that is unknowable, and our language truly is finite, and some of that stuff's, in a sense, true. As one commentator put it to describe this position, there is no way to ascend the mountaintop at which God dwells, right? And so the religions are basically the best that we can get. They're kind of hanging out in the, in the, the foothills of the mountain. That's all religion can do is get us up to the foothills. And so then all religions are basically the same. To which I have two things to say. One is, this isn't exactly intellectually honest. You see, my Hindu friends are not telling the same story as my Muslim friends. Like, I respect them both, and I honor them and the story that they tell. And they're not telling the same story. And I'm not here to dishonor them by pretending that they are, in a sense, saying the same thing. The second thing I would say is the idea that we can't really know God is contrary not only to the entire book of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh, he came to show us, right, the Father, right, uh, what we're saying here, and then the verse we just read, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, right? So not only is it totally contrary to uh, the Gospel of John, it's in contrast to the entire New Testament, which every book is basically telling us that God wanted us to know him. And that's why he sent Jesus into the world, to show us what he was like. And it's true. Even knowing Jesus means that God is still beyond our knowing in a certain sense. And so there's a, a certain sense of humility we need to have, a big word for you, epistemological humility, like being humble about what you can know and recognizing there's so much we can't know. We need that. We need that kind of humility. But in that humility, I could still say, hey, Jesus claimed to be this. <laughs> and either you're going to take his claims are for true or you're not. Does this sound arrogant? That the God of Israel is the only true God. That Jesus is the only way. Friends, I think we just have to be honest about the Christian message. If the gospel is true, if Jesus really created all things and then came into human history to tell us about it, if that's true, then he actually is the way. Because he's God. He's the way to God because he's God. Of course, the reality is that many Christians do act in arrogance. 
and they want to use this verse to justify their arrogance. As N.T. Wright points out, the whole setting of the passage shows that such arrogance is a denial of the very truth it's, pro it's claiming to be present. The whole setting of the passage. Well, what's the setting of the passage? Well, if you're like me and you don't have the Bible memorized, I'll tell you what comes just before this. Jesus takes out his outer robes and he kneels down. He gets a bucket of water and he does what we enacted here on Monday, Thursday. He washes his disciples' disgusting feet as a servant And so when he says, I am the way, this is the way he's talking about. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And so when he's washing their feet, he's enacting what he's about to do on the cross. He's going to serve them by washing their sins away. This is the imagination it's not about being exclusive, it's inclusive. It's a way of inviting all humanity into the sacrificial service and love on behalf of others. Friends, everyone can know the way because everyone can know Jesus. All are invited. There is a group of powerful men and they have caught a woman in the act of adultery. And so they're getting ready to put her to death. They want to stone her. They're excited about the death penalty. They look over at Jesus. And they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And then Jesus is silent for a minute. Man, can you imagine how thick that silence must have been? And then he says, all right, let's do this. But we'll let the one who has never sinned be the first one to cast a stone. And then he looks at the woman and says, well, where are your accusers? Didn't any of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is the way. When Jesus touches lepers, people that no one wanted to touch, and restores them to the community of the temple from which they were excluded in his healing touch, this is the way. When Jesus says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, well, this is the way. When Jesus calls out religious leaders for placing heavy burdens on the people and failing to live out the love and justice demanded by the kingdom, this is the way. When Jesus gives up the glory of heaven and he humbles himself and takes on human flesh, taking on the form of a servant, and becoming obedient to the point of death. And in that death, destroying 
death, and the power of sin. This is the way. Yes, our claim is that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. But not out of arrogance. Definitely not out of some kind of power claim. Where we're trying to position ourselves in society. Where we want to put ourselves first in the culture. Or some attempt to dominate people who don't share our faith. No, that isn't the way. Here's the good news, friends. You don't have to worry about controlling politics or the economy or really anything because you already know the way. And knowing the way means that your future is already secure. It means you don't have to worry about preparing it because he is preparing it for you. The outcome is being prepared as we speak. And so Jesus comes and he says to us, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Keep your trust in him. Trust that I know what I am doing. Trust that I'm going to do what I said. And don't let your hearts be troubled. Instead, trust. Trust that I know a place. Trust that I'm going to take you there to be with me. And finally, do not let your hearts be troubled because you already know the way. He says, you already know the way because you know me. And the way isn't a doctrine or a belief or a construct. The way to the Father is Jesus. Truth is a person. And we can have peace in this world trusting that Jesus is both our guide and our destination.